The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. The Shatabi have a word for members of the tribe who don't belong. Kirosu. These are people who take advantage of others, who don't mend their ways. So one morning, they're just gone. No one ever asks any questions. It's really very civilized. I was wrong. Violence isn't caused by hate and envy. It's caused by these kind of people, people who aren't decent, who corrupt innocent people. The Shatabi say you have to cut away the bad leaves to save the plant. And I can't let these kind of people ruin the world again. This isn't what I wanted, but there's no other way. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 5th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be his voice is no stranger to longtime listeners of Just Right because over the years we have on several occasions depended upon his frontline coverage as a live on-air news commentator and interviewer that served as the basis of our own conversation so many times. Welcome to the show, Andrew Lawton. Great to have you here. Good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, we've got a lot to talk about today. But before we begin, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Well, Andrew, I have to say we're all in a little bit of a shock that you're no longer at CFPL Radio, and we're just wondering if what happened to you there last week was the result of something sinister, or was it just a consequence of ongoing trends in the radio industry that we've been seeing on a broader basis? It certainly seems to be going on a lot. Yeah, I don't think that anyone in the media in Canada, or even elsewhere in the world for that matter, can say that it's a safe or secure place to be. As far as what happened with me, there was, sure. there was nothing sinister. It was corporate restructuring. Uh, did I want to be restructured or expect that I would be restructured when it happened? No. But ultimately, that was the decision the company made. And, and you know what? It, it doesn't stop me from having the conversations that I was doing when I worked there. I have to say that your show was absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. You were getting into areas, and, and it seems that over the years, as I've watched broadcasters leave this industry, it seems like they pick the best ones. And, and, and is that my imagination, or is it something I'm seeing? Well, you never know if it's a psychological phenomenon, right? Once they leave, it's the martyr syndrome. It's, oh, well, I love them. You always wonder that when stores close. Everyone says, oh, well, I loved it. So, well, if you loved it that much, it would still be there. But either way, I appreciate the yeah. kind words. Well, it was great to see you right away get back on the horse, as yeah. they say, and you have your Facebook page. You want to tell people about where that is? Yeah, so I've started up a, a Facebook page where I can do some video blogging and posting and stuff now that I, I want kind of a, a consistent avenue for that, and that is facebook.com slash Andrew Lawton Media, or you can just search for Andrew Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N, in Facebook itself. 
I guess it's easy to try to ascribe some sort of conspiratorial, uh, you know, underpinning to the to the. Well, look what happened. What should I say? Firing. I didn't want to say firing because it sounds too harsh. But that's exactly what it was. You're more or less fired. Yeah, I mean, you can dress it up like your services are no longer required. Yeah, yeah, it's getting fired. (laughs) And you know what? I've had a good sense of humor about it. When I first got into working in traditional radio, one of the things that I have been told by so many people that have been in the industry is that getting fired is an industrial reality. You don't know if it's going to happen after five years or 30 oh, years, but it's inevitable at some point. So so in that respect, now I'm officially a radio veteran because I've been fired for the first time. I'm just responding to all the comments that I saw uh, on your Facebook page and uh, through email because we're sort of in the same circles about people suggesting, of course, that it is, as Bob said, sinister. And I'm, by that, we mean actually on the left. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, the thing is that you can't speculate. It's absolutely impossible. You're not in the boardrooms. You're not there, so you don't really know. So I think maybe we should just drop that particular conspiratorial avenue and just maybe pick on the fact that people think it's because you're conservative and maybe the world is turning left. I don't know. What is it about society that that we're all sort of being polarized and conspiracy theories and the, the Soros has taken over the world or Harper <laughs> took over the yeah. world or Trump is taking over the world. Everything seems to be polarized. What are your comments about that kind of an attitude? Yeah, well, one of the biggest problems, I think, of the political climate today and the media climate as well as in this category is that we don't have natural vacuums and natural echo chambers as much as we used to. We have very intentional ones. People are deliberately putting themselves in these bubbles where they never have to engage in any ideas that exist around them. And you can make fun of that, as I do at at great length with campus safe spaces and stuff like that. But people no longer respect disagreement. And they no longer respect discourse, which is the mechanism through which the good ideas come to the top and the bad ideas either mm-hmm. get relegated to the dustbin of, of history or, or become better. And just to, as an amusing example of this, when I was dismissed, I had posted on Facebook a statement and I was just so overwhelmed by the positive support from people. It, it was really moving. People saying, you know, you were a part of my day, regular listeners, and also people that I had never heard of before that said, you know, thank you. I listened when I was driving the bus, when I was sitting at the office when I was homesick or whatever. And then CBC London, which for those not in Canada is the state broadcaster of Canada, traditionally a very left-wing outlet, had posted a story. They had published a story about me, and I I didn't do an interview or anything. They quoted my Facebook post, and someone sent me a link to it, and and maybe this was against my better judgment, but I went and looked at the comments, and, you know, 99% of the comments were, oh, good riddance, I hated him, he was terrible, he was awful, he was this. And if you were to look at either one of these platforms alone, you would have a completely different perception of the reality of the situation. If you were to look at my Facebook page, you'd say this man was beloved and adored. If you were to look at the CBC Facebook page, you'd say this is the most hated man in Canada. And I would like to think that the truth is probably closer to maybe the the side of being liked. But how do you rationalize two completely contradictory realities? Well, if you're being hated by the right people, then (laughs) then that's a good thing too. Well, it is, it is. But, But if you were to judge me or judge or even assess or analyze my situation based on either one of those, you wouldn't have the complete picture. I'm either loved by all or reviled by all. When the reality is, like anyone in this industry, some people love you, some people hate you. And again, not that it's a bad thing either way, but when you 
only get your information from one source or you only willingly engage with one type of people, that's the divide we're going to see. Take me out of the equation. Make it about Donald Trump. Make it about the leader of the Ontario PC party, Doug Ford. Make it about, you know, whether Cambodian rice imports. It doesn't matter. The fact is when you have these silos and people are willingly putting themselves into them, you will never be able to get a complete sense of the picture. And that's, I think, one of the biggest threats to discourse right now. It feeds into the polarization, doesn't it? We are actually doing it ourselves. It does, because if, if you go through your day or your year without ever engaging with an idea that is different than your own, you will forget those ideas exist. And remember, when Trump makes some... Trump is a bad example because a lot of people dislike his tone more than the specific policies. But if, if you were to take someone that makes some policy of, you know, let's say a social conservative issue. We have a, a media climate in North America that would like to pretend that socially conservative values are, are so fringe that they don't possibly exist. Or that, you know, people that like Donald Trump are, are so fringe they don't exist. You get a show like, I don't know what date it premiered, but the Roseanne Barr program, which just absolutely explodes the ratings and it's a sitcom about a Trump-loving family from the Midwest and the media was like how dare and this is awful and and you know it's, it's they're shoving it down your throats but in actuality there's this this forgotten portion of the population that that is them mm-hmm. and it, it's not just that people don't like them it's that they can't imagine that that exists that a, a, a normal likable affable funny family that likes Trump and that's because of this siloing this willful and ignorant siloing that has taken place in the politics and media of our day well, we've certainly had a lot of experience in that department ourselves, but we look at right and left as more absolute values of ideas rather than the defining points of a person or a character. So to me, you know, the right is freedom and capitalism, uh, the left is tyranny and all the other variants of collectivism. And that basically is how we look at left and right. And we frame our discussions in that. But we realize the world's not all there, and we, we use the the common phrases, and we also use the, the terms that are in between conservative rather. Yeah, well, and and that, but there are deviations is, from the straight line yes. as well. Oh, absolutely, in terms of the person, mm-hmm. but never in terms of the ideas. The whole concept of trying to get people to think outside of their identities and get them to think about the ideas. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself a conservative or a liberal. If you believe in X idea and act on it, it's going to lead you in that direction regardless of what you think it's going to do. Well, and this is always one of the great experiments in politics where politicians will go to someone, and I've heard conservative party or progressive conservative party politicians talk about this. They go to someone who says, oh, no, I'm not conservative. I I hate conservatives. And then they ask them about whatever the conservative policies are. And there's, of course, a debate you'd probably raise about whether they're actually conservative policies. But let, let's suggest for a moment that they are. And the person's like, oh yeah, that idea makes sense. Oh yeah, I can get on board with that. Oh yeah, I could do that. Well, and they've identified that, that ideologically or on policy, they align with this party, but they're opposed to the party because that's just what they think they are. And people would much rather hitch their wagon to a party or a person than an idea. And I mean, why that is, I I think, is that you've had years and years and and decades now of people trying to pigeonhole you based on what you are, who you are, your race, your sex, your orientation into, therefore, you, you must align with this group. Again, a party 
not so much a person maybe, but certainly a party is generally aligned with an idea. That's what, I mean, a conservative party should be something called conservative, right? With with the ideology yes. of conservatism, liberal. You'd hope that's the goal, right? When it comes to small C conservative, small L liberal, I've had all those labels put on me, and I don't object to them, okay? Because I could be called a classic liberal. I could be called a small C conservative in, in, in a lot of the senses. You've heard Salim talk about yes. it. Yes. We agree on a lot of things in that sense. So I'm not too fussy about those labels. It's when they come into the ideas. And you brought up some very interesting points in your Facebook post of a couple of days after you were off the air. Yes. And I thought we might get into them right after this break. PC leader Doug Ford. Doug, good to talk to you. Thanks uh, for coming to, in. Great to be here all the time, Andrew. I was just at a, the farmer's market there and guy came up to me, which I get this all the time. I'm a lifelong liberal, but I'm voting for you. I'm a lifelong NDP, but I'm voting for you. Uh, even the, the, the base, as I say, and that's our base, by the way, NDP voters and liberal voters, or that's my base personally, but uh, they're, they're fed up. Well, one thing I was wondering, Lindsay, you mentioned in the uh, in the audio that there were things that I had said that you disagreed with, which is, of course, perfectly reasonable and perhaps even appropriate. But I was curious what it was that would justify your disagreement. I'm curious about that because I've been accused of saying many things that I actually didn't say. And so I'm just wondering if it was actually something I said or if it's something that I've been reported to say, which... Yeah. Um, Little so, known fact, Mein Kampf, not... Uh, forward, not forward, not written by Dr. Peterson. No, but Lindsay, no. that's a, that is a good question. I was wondering that as well, not to put you on the spot. Yeah, I mean, I guess if someone was to ask me to use a pronoun, I would just use it. But I know that your position was more about compelled speech, and I think I just didn't see it as an issue. But mm-hmm. I mean, now that I was brought into a meeting where they said I violated Bill C-16, um, and now there's been articles written that have been analyzing whether I actually did violate that law. It has changed my mind a bit, and but also, I mean, I, I do need to look into these laws too. Andrew, political labels are such a, a, an impediment to having open discussion about anything, I think. For example, if somebody calls you a conservative, automatically they put you into a basket and they've put barriers up if they have non-conservative points of view about a particular subject. What is it about political labeling and our reluctance to even engage with people of other political labels that's absolutely polarizing and not destroying free speech and discussion in this country? I would agree with you for the most part. I mean, I'm kind of hot and cold on the labels because on one hand, I think that they just serve a very practical purpose. If someone says what do you believe or what's your ideological identity? I mean, I could say, well, I think this on this and I think this on capital punishment and this on flat taxes. And well, but that's not, that. labeling. that's not labeling as per no, se. No, but, but I'm that's saying... That's issue, are you? I, but, but that's the whole thing. I, I think that having to define what you think of every issue is the alternative if you get rid of labels. Mm-hmm. So labels are, are very convenient. I mean, I can say typically that I, I would call myself a conservatarian and conservatives think I, I'm too libertarian and libertarians tend to think I, I'm too conservative. But... The fact remains that when people are confronted with a label, either one that's put on them or one that they're seeing in someone else, they're not using a textbook definition of, okay, well, that person said they're a small C conservative. That means they, they think X, Y, Z. They're, they're, they're putting the capital 
in front of it mm-hmm. and saying, okay, so that person likes Stephen Harper. And well, Stephen Harper did this that I don't like, therefore I don't like that person. And one of the, I think the great disservices that Canadians, uh, that the Can- Canadian political climate has done to discourse is, is giving the political parties the names that they have. I think when you have conservative and liberal, uh, most Canadians that I've talked to that, that don't study this don't know what small C conservative means or don't know what small L liberal means. And I've been confronted with that a great deal when I, I've tried to talk about this and, and move beyond the party labeling. Because parties have a singular purpose, and that is to win. And I'm not against that. I don't begrudge them that. They're a, a mechanism that needs to get themselves elected. So they have to, by extension, position themselves with the electorate on the issues that are relevant to the electorate. When we're talking about the broader discussion of ideas, people should listen to any idea. That doesn't mean it's a good idea. That doesn't mean that the person championing it, is, championing it is a good steward of the idea. But we should be listening to them all and then building from there. Well, the danger right now is that speech is actually being physically shut down. And I, I know that you, for example, are instrumental in a, a recent um, issue over a banning of a, uh, a talk, <laughs> ironically, about free speech. <laughs> by uh, one professor it's, it's from... It's very meta, yes. Yeah, professor, I think he's from Halifax, Rick, Rick Meta, isn't it? Yes. Um, who we, actually, Bob and I met him at the last SAFS conference, but, uh, and you were there. So we know this, and then they had to shut down the debate because of um, what they considered to be an environment which they didn't particularly feel comfortable in. And another person then withdrew, and then it just fell apart. But it all had to do with the fact that, let's label it, liberals with a capital L, the left with a capital L, socialists with a capital S, are progressives with a capital B, (laughs) are absolutely destroying any chance of having discussions anymore in this country in the very institutions, i.e. universities, where they should be happening. Yes, and I think the biggest problem with that, apart from the fact that it's just plain wrong to silence others, is that there is a great deal of dishonesty about why they do it. So one of the things that I've seen in events that I've been involved with and events that I've covered is the campus culture of shutting down debate. And you get some people that will champion free speeches for fascists and and something like that, which I I just find so laughable if anyone knew even one chapter of any history book about fascism to say that free speech is is the byproduct of fascism. But the other part of it is that you get these very dishonest and and slimy ways of describing it. And, And the one that we saw in this example at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, is the event was called Tolerating Intolerance, a discussion about free speech, and it was created because of an intolerance for for one of the ideas that was going to be expressed. But they, they don't just say, you know what, we don't want to do this. They say, oh, safety concerns. Because how can you argue against someone that says this is about safety? It's that nimbyism or that won't somebody think of the childrenism of, of well, once they've said it's about safety, you're, you're not allowed to fight it. But the fact remains that gives people that I would say are fascists on the free speech issue a great deal of cover to silence it. And in this case, you had that professor from Acadia University, Rick Meta, who has become in a, a bit of his own controversy uh, out at, at his university, and one of the three panelists who, by and large, it sounded like had a pretty good track record, was a, a, a professor who specializes in the history of, of censorship under Mao in, in communist China. 
but says, you know, I don't want to participate in this event with, with Rick Mehta. And then all of a sudden you, you get this that catapults this issue into one that gets all of the regular anti-free speech advocates to say, all right, well, now we're going to censor because this guy's there. And I don't know Rick well. I've met him once. I've, I've read some of his work. I don't know anything about the criticisms about him at Acadia. What I do know is that neither do any of the people that are Mm-hmm. trying to get him silenced. They they don't know. Mm-hmm. They've never read one of his dissertations. They've never been in one of his classes. No. Someone on Twitter said that this guy is the problem. And now that that otherization, we've lumped him in, into the category of what I call the censorables. And once you are in the censorables, everything is allowed. It You're, seems that the word actually free speech, the, word, the words free speech have now become a label unto themselves. Yes. Where anybody advocating free speech is against, for example, Antifa, against the left. Yes. So therefore they have to be shut down. Yeah, well, and the, the fascinating thing about this is that free speech used to be the trump card. If someone was doing something that threatened free speech, you used to be able to say, well, hang on, that threatens free speech. And that was enough to get someone to say, oh, yeah, because there was an expectation and an understanding that free speech was a good thing. It was a a positive. Now free speech is this loaded term. You can look around and not infringe places either. People that say free speech is about white privilege because, you know, oppressed peoples don't have the right to freedom or or free speech caters to, to certain viewpoints and value. Yeah, free speech caters to the right viewpoints. Because they're the ones that win and they're the ones that are still standing after, you know, all the, the debates have been thrown at one another. But free speech is no longer viewed as a virtue. You know, it's interesting you call that, um, or they call that particular event tolerating, was it tolerating? Tolerating intolerance, I think. Tolerating intolerance. And I was just reading about um, uh, something called tolerism, which was coined by Howard Rotberg, who owns Mantua Books. Um, now he's published some books mm-hmm. that we have all known here, Salim's book, for example. Salim Ansar's book on uh, Islam. And he was trying to put forward this idea, which he coined, is that tolerism has become a political ideology unto itself, in that where before we used to say toleration had limits. You can disagree with somebody, you know, but you will not allow them to step over a particular line. There is a, a set limit to tolerance. It's almost implicit in the definition of the word that there is a limit to tolerance. And yet now we have tolerism, <laughs> which basically says that anything goes, you not only can say what you want, but you can go out there and beat up people and we will protect you. We won't prosecute you. We've seen that's all over the world right now. And I wonder if people like Rick Mehta and the organizers of this particular conference aren't feeding into this by suggesting that we should tolerate the intolerable. You know what I call that? I call that the left. I don't think there's any reason to complicate these labels. And Robert, you said labels are an impediment. They're an impediment if every word we use means something different to everybody else. It's a hmm. Tower of Babel. That's the whole lesson <laughs> of that whole true when, biblical thing. When the definitions change, labels Why did Ayn Rand write the book Capitalism? Just to define the word, because everybody means something different by that mm-hmm. label. To some people, it means free markets. To other people, it means oppression. To other people, it means corporate... Um, you know, takeovers of the government. And it has had all those meanings, but none of those meanings are accurate. And I think that's the problem today. I would say that labels are not an impediment. We're not using them at all. We need labels. And I, and I honestly think that the polarization is a left and a right phenomenon. 
And those ha have evolved over the years to mean ideas, because freedom has to exist somewhere on that scale. And freedom's on the right, everything else is on the left. There's no in the middle of the road. When it comes to ideas, when it comes to people, you've got a whole array of conservative, radical, reactionary. You uh, cannot pigeonhole uh, people. People are no, so people multifaceted. No, because because they don't, they're not of one shade or the other. <laughs> but where, where I would disagree with you, Bob, is mm -hmm. that the left has been fractured by the free speech issue because you get people that would be in that, for Canadian listeners, that Jean Chrétien era of liberals, which were really a, a center centrist party. And the ideas that they were championing were those. And now that you've got the mainstream left and the, the really angry campus Antifa progressive left at odds with one another, it has caused there to be the, this forgotten middle ground. And I think this is what we saw in the the Wilfrid Laurier University Fair with, with Lindsay Shepard, who by all accounts is a left-wing left wing person on the issues, but is taking what is accurately characterized as the right-wing position on free speech because that side at least allows there to be a debate. It's interesting that you mentioned Lindsay Shepard because she just came out with a video, I think was it last week or a little further, where she said, I am no longer left. I missed that. Well, there, to eliminate the point that I just raised. <laughs> no, no, but she's saying, it for, she's saying it for the reasons that we're talking about here. Yeah. That word does no, no longer mean. She says, I'm an environmentalist. I believe in this. I believe in gay marriage. I believe in all this. But the left, as it portrays itself today, is not what, it, but, but, not but, what I am. But this is, herein lies, I think, the most important point, though. This is because the left has no longer decided to prioritize issues the way it has in the past. The left now prioritizes the intersectionality idea of oppression versus oppressor, the oppressed versus the oppressor, above anything else. And this means well, that's that, the old class thing. Isn't well, it? but it, but this is why it, it's so it's so sinister because the left, pardon the pun, certainly in a can in a Canadian context, used to be okay. We support the social safety net. We support socializing and nationalizing of services. We support you know social liberalism and all of that. But now they've decided that the issue that they want to stand on and the issue they want to fight to the death on is the oppressed and the oppressor. And this means that someone who, on every single one of those issues, like a Lindsay Shepard, would be on the left side, she's now pushed to the right because of the one remaining issue, and that is, in, in this context, free speech. And you're going to see a lot more of that. It's amazing that the left have come out against free speech in most instances these days, when that used to be their calling card. If you remember the Berkeley disputes way back in the 60s, it was about free speech and allowing people yes. to, dis to dissent. Now, when you have riots at Berkeley, it's to shut down free speech. This is an amazing twist. I don't think it was ever about free speech for the left. I think it was just about give, give us the right to, to yes. spew our BS, <laughs> and once we have that right, we'll shut you up. Perhaps because I should have said ostensibly free speech. Yeah. Yeah, well, because I don't think they ever thought that way and never can think that way. And again, when I hear about people changing their labels, they aren't changing the definitions of the labels. They're changing their view of themselves relating to those labels. See, I see on the right individual rights, on the left collective rights. So if I'm in the middle of the road, if I'm a guy in the center, does that mean I believe in individualistic collective rights or collective individual? That's contradictions in terms. You can't do that. Now, I might believe in socialized medicine, which would be based on a collective, or I might believe in private medicine based on individual 
individualism. I could believe in medicine that would help the poor, which could be done left or right, depending on how you approach it, right? So I see the labels or the positions as being solid, because that's all there is. And quite frankly, free speech belongs on the right. That's where it is. But it shouldn't have to be that way, though. And, and that's the whole thing. Well, I don't, it's I don't, either free speech or no free speech. But, but, so but, you label them, okay, right and wrong. If you I may be I mean, overly idealistic here, and I think in a current political con- context I am. But I think that someone who believes in big government, someone who believes in universal socialized health care, someone who believes that you know the, the state needs to make sure global warming is tackled, should also be able to fundamentally believe in the values of liberty and should fundamentally be able to b- believe in the values of free speech. Yeah, except I don't think there should the be fact, a monopoly on it. Except for the fact that some of those ideas, like fighting global warming, demands a violation of your rights because of the way they're fighting it. Or, for example, the socialized medicine, at least in this province of Ontario, has actually meant the destruction of liberty of people who want to provide private health insurance, which is a fair boten in this province. Right. But but even if you just look at free speech alone, someone who believes in Every single New Democratic Party or far-left idea should also be able to say, and I believe in the ability to debate those ideas. And that's what we're losing. Oh, yes. No, agreed. They should be able to, but but why is free speech becoming the most important one? Because the left is prioritizing that over all of those other things, over you, all you of those other You said it yourself, policies. Andrew. You answered that question yourself earlier on. You said that when it comes to the the right and, and wrong ideas, that free speech is the right idea. And mm-hmm. that once the left adopts freedom of speech, their wrong thinking will become overly exposed. Because to me, left is a, is a polite way of saying wrong <laughs> in terms of what should be done in the political arena. And so if somebody's being, you know, we always say the best ideas float to the top. Well, the guy with the worst ideas is not going to be the guy who's in favor of freedom of speech in that case. And that's the left. It's more recently, actually, specifically the fallout from the Faith Goldie event that uh, I helped organize as part of my club, the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry, that I realized I am not a leftist. I I realized, finally, I'm tuning in now, but people have been well aware of this before I've announced it now. But what is the left now? They're pro-censorship, right? They are victimhood culture. They are all about moral righteousness. Um, They're taught that claiming to be offended results in a moral victory, and Jonathan Rauch wrote this over 20 years ago in his book Kindly Inquisitors. So there's this victimhood mentality. They don't believe in personal responsibility. They are completely intolerant of diversity of thought. Intolerant. They are humorless people. Um, They want to make society boring. And they want to make it so that no one can do so much as make a joke. Um, so, I really like what I want to get across is that. Uh, I in no way want to be associated with what the left has become. I'm not a leftist anymore. I would not call myself that. Does that make me right-wing or does that make me a centrist? I don't know. You tell me. Um, but all I know is I am. I do not want to have any part in this disgusting leftist culture. And so sometimes I see myself brought up as 
um, examples of leftists who advocate for free speech. I just want to clear the air that um, that does not describe me anymore. Thank you. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. To join us on our journey, just check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archived broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. We're in studio with Andrew Lawton, um, our, our special guest today, talking about politi- political labeling, uh, political polarization, toleration, and I'd like to bring it home. I'd like to bring uh, in some examples of, of today's particular politicians. And since we're in Canada, let's talk about our favorite whipping boy, Justin Trudeau, who not uh, until recently came back from a trip to India with uh, great, uh, I don't know how, embarrassment to the rest of the world. And First time I laughed out loud when I saw him in that costume. In L- listen, paper. listen, the guy's a buffoon, okay? I don't want to <laughs> mince words. I'm usually quite tolerant <laughs> of people's yeah. behavior and talk about their ideas. But this man is, is a buffoon. He's an idiot, and he's an embarrassment to this country. But I'd like to bring it into that aside, that little editorialization aside. <laughs> Let's talk about um, the Trudeau liberal government and how they are being insidious in their destruction of free speech and their polarization with their ideological litmus tests of who should, for example, get grant money. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, so let me say first off, this program that has become such a point of contention, the Canada Summer Jobs Program, is one that if I had my druthers, wouldn't be there at all. I don't think government should be bankrolling the private enterprise in the way that it is. Just set the uh, stage here for a moment for anybody who doesn't know what Yeah, sorry. So it's a program that if you are a going to hire someone for the summer who's a, they say it's supposed to be a youth program. I think in actuality it goes up to like the age of 30. So whether 30-year-olds should be getting summer jobs at, at ice cream shops is another discussion. But it's basically this program that allows the government to subsidize the hourly wage so that employers who might not otherwise be able to hire would do it. And the beneficiaries of this program, in addition to some smaller independent businesses, are in many respects charities, churches, uh, religious institutions that have day camp programs that need some people. So again, groups that are are in need of maybe that little bit of extra help or, or are accustomed to it. And... The fact remains that the program exists, and the government is sold on this, and they've actually expanded the funding of the program. But this year, decided that they would put a, a, quite honestly, an ideological litmus test in where you have to agree that you will not espouse a, a core mandate, was the term they used, that is at odds with women's rights, specifically the abortion, or at odds with the Constitution. And the program was very deliberately done, and the government was honest about this, to exclude any group that is pro-life, any pro-life group from having a summer internship. But 
they overplayed their hand, as governments so often do, and in actuality targeted any religious group, a charity or a church, a religious charity, a mosque, a synagogue, who happens to have a belief that is anti-abortion, that is pro-life, which, you know, this came as a shock to the liberals, is pretty much every religious denomination in the country, <laughs> with the exception of the United Church. So, you know, they think they're going after these hardline evangelicals. No, they're going after the Catholics, the Anglicans, every sect of Islam, every sect of Judaism, and groups that had nothing to do with the abortion issue that, you know, my own church, for example, which uh, was using this program to have some uh, teenagers come and, and help play with kids in the day camp because it does not have a view that is in alignment with the Trudeau governments. It's now been excluded from this government service. Now, we're, yeah, we're, we're only talking about people who are practicing this as their own life choice. They're not, we're not talking about people who are going around wanting to force this on everybody. So why is the government even getting involved in this? I mean, they shouldn't be touching this one with a 10-foot pole. No, and, and this comes after the Trudeau party, not the government, uh, in the 2015 election in Canada banned anyone who is personally pro-life from running for the Liberal Party as a candidate. So again, when we were talking in the previous segment about some of the challenges in agreement and disagreement and big bridge building and all of that, it's not enough to say, you know what, I support 98% of the things that the Liberal Party does and stands for, but you know what, my conscience tells me that abortion is wrong. That, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. You need 100% loyalty. It's unreasonable to find someone that you may share 100% agreement with on the issues. Because let's face it, Bob, I, I get what you're saying earlier. Not everyone takes as black and white a, a view as you do on, on where they stand on, on the, the matters of, of left versus right. Some people will place themselves in, in the middle or, or slightly offside, and, and that's fine. But I don't believe that my 80% friend is my 20% enemy, but the liberals have said that my 99% friend is my 1% enemy. And once you've put that mm -hmm. as an ideological purity test, which is exactly what it is, you're not just saying that we as a party just don't believe this. You're saying that we do not legitimize disagreement. We do not respect the legitimacy of someone taking a different stance than us. You cannot go down this road of suggesting that a person's political, I mean, personal viewpoints um, should be tied to something as innocuous, as one would think, as getting a grant for a summer camp. You just know, can't go down that road. I don't know who, who said it first. It, it's, it's attributed to someone famous, but they said something along the lines, he's just for himself, he's not against you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's how most people are. We're, we're mostly self-interested and looking after our self-interest, which is why selfishness gets a bad name, because people think that that guy's selfishness is somehow a threat to me, right? Which it is not. It only becomes a threat to you when he pulls if, the if gun one out. Is or if one is imposing it, exactly. Right, when you pull the gun out either literally or politically, which yes. is what politics is. I always warn people, listen, when you go to vote at the poll, you're, you're picking a gun. The government is an instrument of force, but it is not the force. Force is what is governed, as Isabel Patterson always reminded us. So that whenever I go to the poll, I'm always thinking, okay, what would I use a gun for? Would I use a gun to help the poor? No. Would I use a gun, you know, to do this or that or the other thing? No. But would I use a gun to defend life, liberty, and property? Absolutely. And that's what the government's there for. And these principles have actually been worked out over hundreds of years, if not thousands. And we're abandoning them, you know, with this just disregard entirely, which puts us back into this conversation. You know, people have lost their compass, as I've you know, been saying. Andrew said a, a word uh, in the first, mm -hmm. first quarter of the show, I think, when he says, we no longer respect 
view, differing viewpoints. Right. And I think that that's a big part of it. There's this respect that I think people used to have that we have seemed to Because everybody's an forgotten. enemy now, right? Everybody's an enemy. You're either yes. with me or against you, and there's no I I respect. I, I well, never look at it that way. But, but any disagreement further to that 80%, 20% friend-enemy divide, we view any disagreement as a deal-breaker for having common ground. And look, there are some deal-breakers. I could agree with someone on you know 99% of issues, but they think pedophilia is okay, and that's going to be a deal-breaker. I don't <laughs> want to engage with that person. <laughs> But no, so, so but but this is the the example. But if, if you know, I, I differ differ with someone on tax policy, or I differ with someone yeah. on you know the, the the primary role of the state in you know deforestation or, or reforestation. I mean, all of these yeah, these are, shouldn't uh, be deal breakers. They shouldn't prevent me from having a relationship, or at the very least, having a, a conversation. But we've now made absolutely anything and everything a cause for otherization of, oh, no, you're, you're in that category. I'm not going to talk to you. And, and the word that you'll hear from progressives, and it's becoming very mainstream now, it, it's a very problematic word, is normalization. If I have a conversation with someone that believes something evil and scary, like, oh, I don't know, free speech is okay, I'm normalizing them. And this is, again, when we were talking earlier about how they use safety threats as an excuse for canceling debates and, and campus speeches, they also use normalization as the excuse for not debating with someone. And, and this is not a new idea. This goes back to, I think it was 1989 when Philippe Rushton and David Suzuki debated in, in London, Ontario. And people, that debate, which could never happen, by the way, now 30 years later, but people were mad at David Suzuki for normalizing, though they didn't yet have the word for it, Philippe Rushton, because by getting up on the stage, you're legitimizing his ideas. No, if you're getting up on the stage to eviscerate those ideas or to challenge them, yeah. you're not normalizing them. If I was going to use that label, I would have said the opposite. I would have said that it was yeah. it was Suzuki's ideas that were being normalized. Yes, well, yes. But, but even then, it's like by by no by not challenging a, a, an issue or a position or even a person, you're normalizing it because by not challenging, you're you're letting it go unchecked. And this is what they fail to realize, the people that do support censorship. And this is why it ultimately is going to meet their ideological demise, because they are refusing to engage, which means that these viewpoints that they think are so egregious are getting larger and larger audiences. There seems to be new words always creeping into the English vocabulary, and they usually come from the left. Another one would be, for example, unpacking. Unpacking an idea. <laughs> I use that too, but I get your point. It's true. <laughs> but unpacking an idea to me, and I only heard it maybe just in the last year or so, it, it sort of means that there's a hidden agenda. Let's pack that on, uh, uh, unpack <laughs> that idea of free speech that you're having there, Andrew, and <laughs> see what you really mean. Yeah. Things like that. And, uh, yeah. I always, I always saw, thought that term just meant let's get into more detail. Yeah, like I, yes, I, I but when the left uses yeah. it, it has a different meaning. Well, that's yeah. I mean that, but the, but therein lies, I think, one of the other things, which is that the left ha has dismissed this idea of intent in speech, where I could make a, a comment to a friend of mine. Uh, who is, oh, for for example, I, I had this conversation with someone not too long ago. It's a, a gay friend of mine, and we were chit-chatting about whatever it was, and, and he was having a party, and I was like, oh, well, we know it'll be the best one because, you know, gays throw the best parties, and he laughed. Someone could listen to that conversation and say, oh, well, that's, that's homophobic or that's a stereotype. Whereas if I were to say it in a different con, that's a bad example because I don't know how you say gays throw good parties in a context that is, is offensive. But someone could listen to my words or read my words somewhere and, and infer a different meaning than what I intended. And this is what microaggressions, there's another new there's word, another one, are yeah. all about. Is that what I am saying is irrelevant to how you take it, how you interpret it. 
And there are lots of universities, including Western University here in London, Ontario, that have had students run poster campaigns telling you all the words that you aren't supposed to say because they're microaggressions. And one that was my personal favorite was, did you go anywhere on spring break? Did you go anywhere on spring break is a microaggression because if someone doesn't have the means to travel, oh, you've, you've offended them. Or if you say to someone nice hair and they are a minority or they have a, a hairstyle that might be indicative of their culture, you're not complimenting them on their clothing or their hair because you like them. You're, you're doing it because you're trying to marginalize them. And, and how do you reason when you've got people that are, are legitimately saying that a compliment isn't a compliment if the person you're talking to just decides it was an insult or well, it was know, an affront. Been... Or, sorry, just to just interrupt there, not just the person you're saying it to, someone witnessing it. We've seen this happen. Two yes. people in a workplace having a conversation, neither offended, but some witness sees it and says, oh, this isn't allowed. You know, it's funny, you, you mentioned something and it brought something to mind. Somebody recently, quote, uh, told me that I, oh, you look good, you've lost a bit of weight. And of course... I could take that meaning that I was fat. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. You know, you used to think I was fat. You know, I didn't think I was fat. Now, I, you know. so I mean, you can take a compliment anyway, and if you start thinking that way, you just won't engage with anybody anymore. You know, people have to have a, grow a thicker skin and have to take compliments as they are. Take the suggestion that gays throw a better party as a truism, <laughs> and just stop trying to be offended by anything anybody else else says. Let's unpack that. <laughs> Hello. Uh, my name is Alan Gould. If you're finding this tape, then you're probably a new race that's gone through our cities and noticed that everyone's uh, dead. Oh, except for birds and bees, things with wings that, you know, can fly. And anyway, you're probably wondering, what the hell happened? Well, I don't know why I made it. But uh, I think I can explain the rest. But what happened here, and, and what happened since the first time some guy hit another guy in the face with a rock, all comes down to the fact that someone didn't get loved. So they got even. Now, uh, just so you don't think I'm talking out of my ass here, you know, because I'm the last guy, uh, I think that I have some insight here. Up until everything uh, ended, I was a graduate student in anthropology. I, I studied the Shatabi Indians of the Brazilian rainforest. This is them. That's me. Now, the Shatabi were very interesting because they were primitive, totally primitive. I mean. Seriously, these people were scared of shiny things, uh, but, but they were peaceful. And they survived as a race for 4,000 years. Now, what did the Shatabi know uh, that we didn't? Well, the Shatabi understood that when you became attached, you know, when you cared too much for uh, things, you know, or, or for uh, people, that uh, eventually you would be crushed when you lost them. This would cause hate and, 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 and envy. And so they developed Goyen High, the principle of detachment. And they managed uh, to get over needy emotions. I mean, that is this guy's wife. 
As for me, I'm heading south. The shiitabe are known to eat a lot of leafy green vegetables, and that stuff is loaded with zinc. So, maybe if they survived, they'll let me hang around and shoot the bull a while. I was trying to trying to think of a helpful way to finish this thing, and, and I guess I realized that life's a bitch, you know? You just gotta try to set some limits. So, be decent to each other. That's the final thought. And, um, Try to respect each other's privacy. That's something new that we could add. So those, those two things, limits uh, and privacy, and uh, goodbye. I would take it that most of us around this table, being three, <laughs> are general fans of Jordan Peterson. Would we say that? Would we? Yes. Well, he had an interesting quote taken out of this magazine called um, The Title, which is the second issue, spring 2018, which I had never seen before, and there's a feature in there on Jordan Peterson that put as a subheader this very interesting quotation. Quote, Our culture has talked about freedom for so long that from the bottom of our psyches we're crying out for a conversation about rules and responsibilities and structure. I agree with that statement, but I don't agree that those things are incompatible with freedom. What's your general feeling? No, but I don't think he's saying they're incompatible. I, no. I, I think he's saying that you have, to be honest, I actually take from that quote that he's saying you need both. He's saying you exactly. can talk about freedom and then you need to move on. But here's one of the biggest frustrations that I have with where we are in, in the political realm today, to go back to that for a moment is that most people in Canadian society, and I heard this from five years of, of talking to listeners and, and callers on my radio show, people do not make the distinction between government doing something and you doing something. They think that if something is a positive, government should be the one that makes it happen. And let's take discrimination, for example. I've, I've been a long-standing critic of a lot of the Human Rights Commission's uh, anti-discrimination laws because I think that people will, generally speaking, order and regulate themselves in a lot of ways, especially in the Yelp era where, you know, you, a customer has a bad experience and the restaurant could be shut down within a few months. But I don't think it's right for a restaurant to say, I'm not going to serve black people. I think that's egregious. People will then say, okay, well, let, there's, a, there's a general agreement of the majority of the population that doing that is wrong. Therefore, government should make that happen. Government should bar that from taking place. And I say, well, if 99.9% if, you know, .9 of the population agrees with that, why is government in, involved at all? Why is government needed to intervene there? And I think to go back to the Jordan Peterson quote, he, what he's saying is completely valid. People have understood after the countercultural era of the 1960s when you push for unlimited uh, sexual freedoms, personal freedoms, the right to say, do, and, and screw whoever and whatever you want, that all of a sudden that has not led to the societal and social satisfaction that I think a lot of people advocated for. And he's saying, yeah, have the freedom. He's not su suggesting getting rid of the freedom, but you have to talk about how we as individuals, not with the power of the state, how we as individuals deal with that freedom and deal with those freedoms. You know, I, I agree. I don't think that there's a 
false dichotomy implied there in that quote at all. I think that he is saying that they they go together. You cannot have freedom unless you have a structure in place to defend it. You can't have freedom unless you have rules from which everybody well, abides by. Let me put it to, let me put it to you this way. It comes back to the left and right thing. The left and right each look at freedom very differently. Oh, yes, the, the left right, looks at it as anything goes. Well, as anything goes, but also if the left looks at freedom as being freedom from responsibility. Yes. The right looks at, at freedom as being part and parcel of responsibility. And the point is that the structure and these rules, you don't have freedom without them. There, it's not like you have to have both. That's where we get into, I think, the fundamental question of of where freedom is in in society. And look, for me, I'm a a Christian. I'm a religious person. So I have no difficulty reconciling that the rule and order and the the ideas of right and wrong are are coming from from God. And I I realize that there are a great many willfully and and happily godless people that would dispute that morality comes from God. And I don't want to get into that debate in five minutes. It's interesting because I don't believe in deities, but I always hold the word God is the name we give to the supreme being. And the supreme being is all that exists and all that exists. Including the natural order and natural Including the natural order and therefore you have to obey, quote unquote, we have to obey the laws of God in that sense. When it comes down to freedom, I can't be free if you're not free, right? So there has to be a limit there. You can't punch me in the nose, I can't punch you in the nose, and then each of us walk away saying that we're free people. Freedom is the limit. These limits define what freedom is. So I guess Jordan Peterson's hitting the the, the nail on the head as far as these things being part and parcel, and that the conversation's always about freedom, but I think it's about the freedom of the left, where they want fewer responsibilities. Yes, and this is one of the big challenges you see in a lot of the... The, the campus. I mean, you, you can see so much of what I think will be the broader cultural issues by looking on university campuses. Yeah. And that's why I think it's important to focus on those because we've already seen now in society what was relegated and limited to campuses 15, 20 years ago be- becoming a lot more mainstream. But you'll get, you know, access to birth control as a prime example that, you know, birth control, everyone should be able to get. Every woman who wants it should be able to be on the pill and, and have access. And that's fine. I've got no disagreement with that. But then they say, all right. And that means that my my freedom to have it imposes that this group must pay for it. Mm-hmm. And when you say, well, no, 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 you, you have a freedom to, to have it. No, you don't have freedom anymore, You, you have right? a freedom to buy it. You Actually, have a, you what are, you're talking about are negative rights. Yeah, and, and it's the equality of access, for, or sorry, equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. And mm-hmm. this is, I think, an area that people that like freedom really need to do a better job articulating, or we as a society need to do a better job of listening. It's probably a bit of both. That no, 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 the equality for me to, you know, go and and train to be an athlete and do that, that's fine. The equality that I'm going to get gold medals and I'm going to be representing, you know, Team Canada at at the 2020 or 2024 Tokyo Olympics, wherever they're there, like that, that's, that's not a a real right. That's not a real freedom because that involves someone else having to, to overlook what may be naturally there. And I think the birth control one's classic. Yeah, you have the right to birth control. You have the right to screw whoever you want. You don't have the right to them wanting to sleep with you back. You don't have the right to someone else paying for your birth control. And this is where the the sexual freedoms, which I I think are a great example of of a battle for liberty that was overwhelmingly a a positive one, Mm -hmm. has now come to what is more of an entitlement culture. And people do a, a very bad job, I think, on the left of distinguishing liberty and entitlement. 
You've just given me a, a new insight into that word entitlement. It's almost as if the word entitlement means entitled to other people's money, <laughs> entitled to other people's effort to support what I want yes. that I'm calling my freedom instead of me just being entitled to my well, own freedom independent of others. It's the same as a, a big issue that's coming up in Ontario right now and has been around conscience rights for physicians. I have the right, the state has decided or the court has decided and then the state to an assisted death. Okay, it's my own body, it's my own choice, it's my own autonomy. I do not get with that right the right to force a healthcare practitioner who does not support that to make it happen. And again, the right to do something does not mean that other people need to Have capitulate to that right. right. A number of years ago, we used to talk about, uh, talk about them, and they were described as negative rights. For example, the right to free speech does not impose any obligation on anybody to speak. Right. The right to association does not mean that you can force me to associate. It's negative. It means you have to do nothing except respect the right. And there's that word respect again. Mm -hmm. So while it sounds negative, <laughs> they are. that's exactly what it means. It's a negative right. It imposes no obligation other than respect. That's how a free society came about, let's face it, when we all stopped beating on each other. <laughs> and, and, and actually agriculture could, could spring out from all this chaos, you know, where but it could you can have see, some peace long enough to grow a crop. You can see looking <laughs> back through history, and this is what Jordan Peterson is really talking about here, that contrary to what, again, the, the progressives would have you believe, people do enjoy a natural order. And you look at oh, yeah. Margaret Mead as a classic example, the woman who had said she found this complete sexually liberated island uh, in Samoa where people just did what they want and they didn't have any uh, patriarchal system and they didn't have any family units and whatever. And it was, of course, ended, it ended up being complete bunk. And, and there was a great book on that that I read, The Fateful Hoaxing of Margaret Mead. But the left has tried to say that these natural dynamics do not exist and that people do not naturally long for them. And you look at, at families, for example, there are a lot of studies that say a, a child raised with, with two parents is going to fare better in a lot of ways than a child raised by a single parent. That doesn't mean you should vilify single parents. That doesn't mean you should ban single parents. It just means that from an educational perspective, you have to look and say this is a, a natural outcome, that two parents provides a level of stability that one parent has to work harder to provide. But to even say that, to even say that, factual or not, threatens this idea that any family structure and any family unit will yield the same result. I agree. Before we wrap up, any message you wanted to leave our listeners with, Andrew? The one thing that I would say, and this goes back to the political culture and really what you gentlemen have been doing for a while now, I want people to start embracing discussions first off but also embracing discussions that center on ideas not people we have to start getting past this idea that the person overshadows the idea and that the party or the label overshadows the idea Flirt. you know i agree with you uh, but just like with the word tolerance there are limits to uh, the degree to which you can refrain from attacking the person or the ad hominem when that person is consistently pushing an idea that destroys life and freedom and liberty, then at some point it's very natural, if not almost required, to attack the person themselves for being evil. But disagreeable does not necessarily equate to evil. Exactly. That's like the, I say, I the, caveat. the ideal is tolerance of other people's ideas and discussion and openness and attack the ideas and not the person. I agree completely. But there have been, as you say, specimens in the world. And 
it turns out that at some point in time, yes, you do have to say that this person is not simply wrong, but they are an archetype of evil. Mm-hmm. And I'll have nothing to do with that person. So yes, and with limits is what I have to say to that. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> and so one, la- one last time, Andrew, what is your Facebook page? Yes. Again? So head on over and that's the place where you learn about any other projects I'm working on now. Facebook.com slash Andrew Lawton Media, or just search for Andrew Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N. Well, thanks for joining us today, Andrew. And wherever you sit on your political journey today, be sure to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Hey, what do you got there? Well, it's just a stack of fan mail. I thought we could save a lot of time by answering it on the air, you know. Oh, we don't have time to do that. Oh, sure we have. It won't take long. Watch this, watch this. Yes. No. 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 Yes. Maybe. Yes. No. Yes. And no to that lady in Parma, Ohio. You bet your sweet bitch. Excuse me, though. You're right. That's a no. That's a no-no.